welcome to Eureka Nerd. I'm Will, a scheming baby. And I'm Leah, swearing. There's a lot of editing. It takes a lot of editing. But before we get to the foul-mouthed projections of science, let's start off with something out of the mouth of babes. Or in the eyeline of babes. In the brain of babes? I mean, they haven't been scanning brains for this particular study. They've just been watching where a baby is looking. Which is about as close as you can get to doing science on a baby. Most We should probably talk about what this study actually is. We probably should. Essentially, the Cognition and Development Lab at Washington University in St. Louis found out some interesting things about the social development of those tiny, not-quite-people we call babies. And what it really boils down to is that they learn through repetition. Not necessarily their repetition, but yours. If you repeat behaviour in front of a baby, after the third or fourth time, they start to expect that kind of behaviour. They will start to get a grasp on the things you prefer, on your habits, and in this particular study, they had some actresses choosing cuddly toys in front of babies between seven and nine months old, and then ask the baby to give them one of the toys, and if they have shown a consistent preference, the babies can consistently give them the toy they prefer. They chose wisely. There's a lot of work goes into looking at child development, because it's... Best way of figuring out what the human might develop as. And we all want to give our offspring the best chance of having the happiest and most successful life. As we were talking about with bilingual development in the last episode. And turns out, without any outside input, even when they're less than a year old, they are... Learning. Yeah, learning on this social level. We put it quite nicely, the paper puts it in somewhat more sinister terms. The opening lines, even, are... Behind the chubby cheeks and bright eyes of babies as young as eight months lies the smoothly wearing mind of a social statistician, bugging our every move and making holes of what a person is most likely to do next. I had to do that in the kind of the movie announcer voice. It just seemed apt. Obviously because it's difficult to ask children that young what's going on, what they're learning. They've had to come at this from a slightly abstract angle by observing how long an action is holding a child's attention. Which must be some very tightly controlled conditions, because most of the babies I meet, nothing holds their attention. He says most of the babies he meets, but when I mentioned something about a baby the other week, he assumed I meant one particular baby. The most recent baby, yes. <laughs> So yeah, I got to send a text to one of our friends telling her that she was in possession of the baby. The only one? The one baby. I'm like a cat. I've got no object permanence when it comes to... <laughs> I have no baby permanence. <laughs> it's alright. Babies don't have baby permanence. That's sort of the point of them. Speaking of babies, who are just about as young as you can get, would you like to be any younger? I would have quite liked to stop aging at 19. I liked being a teenager. 19 was a good year. I didn't enjoy stopping being a teenager. But also, at 26, people stop going, Oh God, you're so young! And they start telling you, Oh God, you're so old. We might not be getting any younger, but researchers are getting closer to 
rejuvenating and refreshing you at a cellular level, and maybe even turning back the clock, going down to the cellular level, and reprogramming your telomeres. You might have heard of these if you followed any DNA developments in the last few years. They're basically like the grommets on shoelaces. They cap off your DNA and stop it from unspooling or degrading. Yes, they are a buffer zone on the end of each of the ends of each of your chromosomes, and as you get older and as you age, they get shorter and shorter. Now, this study is specifically looking at cell cultures from sufferers of progeria, which is a rapid ageing disease, which usually limits the lifespan of sufferers to their teenage years. In fact, author Dr John Cook talks about it saying that these kids are dying of heart attacks and stroke at 13, 14, 15 years old. And that while we all have telomere erosion over time, many of the things that happen to these children at an accelerated pace still occur in all of us. But he describes the process that they're working on using mRNA signaling, some of the messengers that get shuttled around between ourselves and inside ourselves to communicate what DNA is telling the cell to do. What we've shown is that when we reverse the process of telomere shortening in the cells from these children and lengthen them, it can reverse a lot of the problems associated with ageing. They looked at a number of different markers of ageing in cell cultures, the lifespan of cells, their ability to divide and repair themselves, and found that they were improved as the telomeres were rebuilt. I've just had the terrifying realisation that this is a plot point in Jupiter Ascending, the Wachowski siblings' opus starring... Mila Kunis and Channing Tatum with Sean Bean not dying for once. Oh, and Eddie Redmayne in that fantastic cloak. Putting the opera back in space opera. Mm. Yes, if Mila Kunis does want to ascend to her throne of the Abraxas Empire, then maybe she should read up on this research, available in the Journal of American College of Cardiology. Of course, on the slightly weirder side, it is talking about diseases of ageing, you know, most human diseases are caused by ageing eventually. And while it might be nice to have a longer, healthier old age, do you only get this treatment if you can pay for it? At which point we're veering back into Elysium. It turns out there's a lot of science you can couch in sci-fi terms. We're getting quite good at predicting so many futures that one of them is bound to be right. Also, good sci-fi builds on the science it has access to. Good sci-fi has giant robots. Yeah, that too. You know what good sci-fi hasn't touched yet? What's that? Fly boners. Oh wait, Cronenberg. <laughs> Man, they just they just keep making it's, movies. Yeah. Um, but on to the next story from Yale University, which isn't so much about fly intercourse as the choice of flies to either engage in procreation, or restful sleep. And I understand the appeal of both, but how do we weigh that in a tiny fly brain? Turns out... There's no answers! They will choose one over the other, depending. Sterling work there, lads. Presumably it will later have some further research done into this, which might... Finish the job? Yeah. Until then, Yale University, we expected more of you. Now on to some people who have done their jobs at the University of Oxford. Well done, you. Now this is going to sound weird, but stay with me. Looking through fish DNA to find a secret virus. 
Now, this wasn't the job that doctors Aris Katsarakis and Amma Aswad actually set out to do originally, but it looks like it's going to be real useful. They were looking for an ancient herpes virus in primates and stumbled across evidence of two other undocumented viruses. They were using huge online genome databases, which are publicly accessible. Now, these databases are generated by a technique called next-generation sequencing, which isn't just putting your Star Trek box sets in order. It basically explodes the DNA of a cell, splatters it out everywhere, in order, hopefully, and then you can scroll through like you are going through the index at the end of a book, searching through, basically looking for markers, sections of DNA which you can associate to say, oh, this is a promoter, this is a tumour-associated gene if you're looking for cancer markers, and if you find enough flags in the same area, then you can start to derive some idea of purpose, function, and you can do this with a lot more cells over much more quantities of DNA. And if you're looking for markers you associate with herpes virus in regions where you've not found them before, then you can start to figure out where viruses may have been inserted or even lost in a genome of an organism and contributed to, well, where we all are now today. Now, this is the thing that enables this sort of research to discover new viruses as opposed to, for example, finding something which is unwell in some way and identifying the pathogen that's causing that, is that viruses often have a tendency to break themselves up and combine little scraps of their genome into the DNA of whatever organism they're picking on and because of the way DNA works being passed on from one organism to its offspring to its offspring to its offspring these can hang about for millions of years. So with some clever pattern spotting algorithms after accidentally stumbling on more than they were originally looking for in primate DNA they moved on to a separate project looking for fish infecting herpes viruses and across 15 different species of fish, including Atlantic salmon and rainbow trout, they found scattered fragments of a, a viral lineage that may even be a, new, a whole new family, as well as the herpes they were originally looking for. And then, just to give it the kind of TV sketch show grounding that this highfalutin viral genomic research really needs to bring it back down to Earth, to confirm the viral evidence was not simply a fluke. Fish puns. They tested additional samples from a local supermarket and sushi restaurant. Like, they, they just turned up, hopefully, like, lab coats and pipettes in hand, saying, <laughs> excuse me, we need your fish. We're looking for herpes, and we need your fish. Two guys wander into the Oxford Yo Sushi. As long as it's Blue Plate Mondays, then they can get the funding for that, for sure. Do you eat the rice while you're testing the salmon? That seems a shame to waste it. Get some vegetarian ones so that you've definitely got snacks. <laughs> As a control. <laughs> If we find the same DNA in, an, in the avocado pieces, we definitely got it wrong. And a quote from Dr. Katsarakis later down in the paper, One of the real strengths of this next-generation sequencing technique, as composed to traditional virology, is the speed and the lack of reliance on identifying a diseased individual. Like you were saying about trying to find a sick guy and poking them to see what comes out. The viral data collected that may otherwise be discarded as a nuisance is a unique resource for looking for both pathogenic and benign viruses that would have otherwise remained undiscovered. And in fact, I've heard that a large quantity of the DNA that makes up you and me and everyone listening to this is it's affectionately termed junk DNA, because we either don't know what it does, or we know that it doesn't do anything. 
and one of the leading theories for why there is so much unused genetic material in organisms is to catch viruses, to throw in the occasional binding site that they might slip their genome into, and then that never gets touched again. It's not used to make any proteins, it's never synthesized into anything that a living cell will need to make, so it just absorbs the blow, almost. And there's a lot of DNA that's previously been categorized as junk that we do now have more of an idea what it does um, epigenetics being an increasing field a lot of these things are alleles that are just turned off and not being used because they only become activated in very unusual circumstances an important safety note at the end from dr katsarakis when asked on the risk to humans he said put it this way i'm not going to stop eating sashimi so hey, they can go back to Yosushi after all. And now we have a story which appeals to all of Will's favourite science things. It's been a long time since I've got to say this, so I'm going to just... Savour the moment. Mm -hmm. We return you now to... The, the terrifying, terrifying void of space. And in particular, some of the weirder bits... Of the of the void of space. Arguably some of the weirdest bits. Black holes. Black holes and neutron stars. Primordial black holes at that. There are a lot of elements in the universe which aren't likely to be made inside a typical star. Anything heavier than iron, in the atomic sense, is quite difficult to make in a normal star. There's a lot of subatomic particles in them and they need a little bit more force to push those together and form them into a single atom. So how is it that we're in a universe with fairly abundant supply of things like gold? Because if they are coming from supernova, which is where they do come from as we best understand, then there'd have to be a lot more supernova than we are currently witnessing. And sure, when we do see them, they are spectacular and they remnants that stick around for billions of years. You can see one if you ever find the Crab Nebula. And the best way of making up how many explosions there were, and then when, and then where a lot of that matter went, is physics' other bet noir, black holes. So, as you probably are aware, a black hole is a branch on the life cycle of a star where, as it collapses in on itself, it just keeps going until it's such a tiny, dense point of matter that not even light can escape its gravity. By comparison, a neutron star is a point just before that, where you have a very small but very massive star, which doesn't actually emit light as such. They have been found to emit microwaves... Yeah, you can think of a singularity as a star so dense that the light it makes can't escape its gravity. So just before that happens, not much is going to be getting out, apart from the very high-speed particles, light being the fastest. Microwaves are one of the things that we can still detect from them, we think? Space. Essentially, you put a, a small black hole together with a neutron star. The black hole can be captured and essentially end up inside the neutron star and as it's finally devoured it spits heavy metals all over the place. Can I quote George Fuller 
theoretical astrophysicist and professor of physics at UC San Diego Center for Astrophysics and Space Sciences directly because this is the most sci-fi sentence I've read in weeks. Small black holes produced in the Big Bang can invade a neutron star and eat it from the inside. In the last milliseconds of the neutron star's demise, the amount of ejected neutron-rich material is sufficient to explain the observed abundances of heavy elements. As neutron stars are devoured, they spin up and eject cold neutron matter, which decompresses, heats up, and makes these elements. And conveniently, if it turns out this is how the universe works, the process would provide some explanations for some other unresolved puzzles which were previously thought to be basically unrelated. So they may explain the fast radio bursts picked up by radio telescopes from unknown places deep in the universe, the positrons detected in the galactic centre by X-ray observations, and distinctive displays of infrared lights, which are sometimes known as kilonova. The coolest name. That, that's just the coolest name. I want to start an electro band called kilonova. I will do this with you. <laughs> we can make this happen. Whilst we are here, doing our best to get the hypest science research out to you, including scheming babies and the coolest stuff in space, we're doing probably the easy part of science communication. The research has happened, we just get to sit here and talk about it. We're literally sat on our sofa in our home. We're not out there at the coal face. Or the kilonova face, is the or case Or the kilonova face. We're not sat there combing through radio telescope data or trying to set questionnaires when you're somewhere with less than optimal record keeping. And sometimes deeply entrenched socioeconomic barriers to conducting social research, which goes some way to answering the question, why is conducting research in some countries so difficult? The question has been asked by investigators at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health in collaboration with the Federal University of Sao Paulo, and essentially poor record-keeping and entrenched socioeconomic barriers are two of the reasons conducting research in some countries is Real hard. In fact, Sylvia Martins, who's Associate Professor of Epidemiology at the Melman School of Public Health, lists some of the hardships that they've encountered just gathering some data for a long-term epidemiological survey on a school sample based in Brazil. And you'd think, well, you just go to the school, get some records, follow them up, keep track of the kids for some time. Turns out, when you have barriers to achieving unbiased sampling... Reaching subjects, scheduling interviews, keeping participants updated with contact information, and counting on a highly trained research team, the research suffers. Several of the class records that they were trying to work from included the names of students who had never actually been at that school at all, let alone being an accurate list of the people who were currently studying there. The communications were hampered by poor internet access and even poor phone and postal services. I mean, if you can't even get in touch with someone by post, you are reduced to walking to what was their house last time you spoke to them and hoping they're in. So ultimately, in answer to the question, why is conducting research in some countries so difficult? For exactly the reasons you'd think it would be. 
not everywhere in the world is as obsessive about making sure everyone and everything is documented. And some might argue that we here in England and other places in the world, too much information is collected. A lot of our data is being tracked and gathered without us even knowing about it. And I personally object to being on camera nearly all the time when I'm outside the house. Britain is bad for that. I'm this close to adopting a true cyberpunk makeup style that will break up the lines of my face so I can't be recognised by facial recognition software. I'd also look glam rock as hell. You'd be super cool. Um, More so. <laughs> you are biased. A little bit. But when it comes to information about yourself and your personal health, well, how much information is too much information? This is a question that the University of Illinois College of Liberal Arts and Sciences are tackling in their study published in the Journal of Clinical Psychological Science. And some of the authors, Dolores Albarasin, who is a professor of psychology, and graduate student Jack MacDonald and other colleagues at other universities, study the behaviours of almost 500 people to try and understand how much data is being gathered and how much information patients or potential patients would like to get back and how much information it's useful for them to have. The press release uses the example of googling how to prevent cancer and you will be presented with thousands of pages with thousands of suggestions, many of which contradict themselves, about how you might go about not developing cancer. I mean, you work in, in cancer research. Mm -hmm. Would you agree that probably the best way to avoid ever getting cancer ever is to die young? This comes back to the telomere conversation we were having earlier, that eventually it's just an odds game of will it be this year or the next or the one after that? Something's going to happen. Since cancer is a disease of cell replication, the longer your cells go on replicating, the closer your chances of developing cancer get to certain but then with next-generation sequencing, we can detect biomarkers for disease predisposition. We can understand the epigenetic makeup of your tumour. We can investigate the virome, the viral infections which may have led to the gene rearrangement which caused your tumour. There's a lot of information out there. But, specifically in this case, they are looking at how many interventions it is useful to provide patients with information about for various things. Um, quitting smoking is particularly mentioned. Essentially, it's the goal of your communication affects how much information it is useful to give somebody. If you just want to make them aware that they have many options, you want to go for the most. If you actually want somebody to act on a health recommendation, fewer is far better. Turning up with a long laundry list of complaints might not have the same motivational aspect as saying, hey, you need to diet and exercise right now or your life will be shorter. Yeah, if someone turns up, you assess their symptoms and you decide that they are, for example, pre-diabetic. If you just want to make sure they're aware that there are many ways to handle this, you can list... I mean, it's, it's the usual stuff. It's diet and exercise, sleeping well, drinking plenty of fluids. General good health. General, the, yeah, the general advice you get for good health. If you want them to act on it, you want to give them lots of detail about, like, one thing, you want to say, okay, I would like you to 
drastically lower the quantity of sugar you're consuming. Here's a list of foods which are high in sugar. Here's a list of alternatives. Here's a recommended diet plan going forwards. Here's an actionable course for you to take. And then later you might suggest here are ways you can start to exercise more. No one wants too much too soon. Or not enough too late. Making sure that you get it on time is important. So, a suggestion at the bottom of this paper is recommendations in small bursts, perhaps via text messaging, to maximise the proportion of recalled recommendations when minimising the costs to a patient. Much cheaper than the cost of hospital admission. And then, off the back of this information from the University of Illinois, we head over to San Diego State University for more information that you probably shouldn't hear. Do you think it would harm our iTunes ratings if I said that Apple could go my stick? I hope you're going to beep one of those words out, because... I am going to be beeping a lot of this out. You've made a point of telling me not to swear on this podcast. I'm going for a hilarious sequence of beeps with interstitial words. Okay. So if I had to say, Satorni. Or if we go for the In the Thick of It classic, Come the in or the off. Or indeed, you can't me, I am unfuckable, I cannot be f***ed. But as many beeps as that may end up being in the edit, it turns out that even us using a risque language here on the internet, a shock, is really just an expression of linguistic freedom. This is research coming to us from San Diego State University psychology professor Jean M. Twenge, along with SDSU graduate student Hannah Van Landingham and University of Georgia psychologist W. Keith Campbell. I'd like to congratulate for all of their fun names. And their work looking at the George Carlin list of seven words you can never say on television. Now, this is a US-based study. I don't know if anyone has done or is doing any similar investigation into swearing in anywhere else in the world. I personally would be quite interested to see if Australians swear any more now than they ever did. I've known some Australians who are real good at it. We definitely have a stereotype of Australians as being pretty liberal about... I mean, they really put the practice in, and I think that shows. The study, conducted by analysing textual content from tens of thousands of books published between 1950 and 2008 that have been catalogued by Google Books, they have found a steadily rising trend of those seven words you shouldn't say on TV, and they are they are the same seven words. I have been given the list. It was bestowed upon us by one of our lecturers in my broadcast journalism degree of these are the seven most offensive words. And some of them I use in regular conversation with my parents and they don't even tell me off for it. So Twangy says the findings suggest the words have become much less taboo over time. One interpretation being that people today value free expression more than they did in the past, which dovetails with previous research that finds that American society is becoming increasingly individualistic, and that is especially prominent in young people. Well, let's look at the time frame they're working with from the 1950s, the era of McCarthyism, taking scalpel to all kinds of media and making sure there was nothing countercultural in it at all, which led to the social uprisings of the 60s through to the dark ages of the 80s and now into the who can even tell what we're calling millennials these days. 
I think that's one of the things about historical eras is you you can't define them until you've come out of them. We know that what we're living through right now is significant because, I mean, I for one am terrified most of the time. Mm. Generally, just a low background. Huh? We're having, you know, a resurgence of Cold War mentalities and threats going back and forth. Governments interfering with one another and with their own citizens and... If you can't say a lot of it, I'm f***ing the f*** off. Hopefully, once we're at the other side of it, we'll be able to go, well, Jesus H f***ing Christ, I'm glad that's over, and move on into a brighter future. So, with what is surely going to sound like a Morse code secret message behind us, we can wrap this episode up with just a few final words, looking at a bright future filled with all kinds of swearing and understanding now the benefit of investments in dikes worldwide. That is the flood prevention kind, although I'm sure if you wanted to go and give some money to the nearest lesbian, she'd be grateful for it. And the puzzling question of, are the world's highest paid footballers overpaid? Big data says yes. A pair of computer scientists working in Michigan have put together an algorithm to work out how much football players should be paid based on their skills, and broadly speaking... Better players are paid more. But when you're right at the top, there's... I mean, it lists Messi as the world's most overpaid football player, although he is also the one their model suggested should be the best paid, which suggests his agent is doing a sterling job. Lionel Messi may be the world's most overpaid football player, but he clearly has the agent who is earning his damn commission. 22 million? You could hire... 10 BBC radio presenters for that. 50 if they were women. Possibly even more if they were women of colour. Well, we'll leave you to do the maths on that and get back to us for our next episode, but that's all from us for now. If you do have any thoughts or questions, then send them our way at EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com Or leave a review or rate for us on whatever platform you're listening to us on. It really is the best way to reach out to new people. You can also find us on Twitter at EurekaNerdcast and we don't have an Instagram, so, I don't know, just find a nice picture of a cat and think of us. It would mostly be pictures of Will's beard, probably. That is a secret blog, and I thank you not to speak of it. On that bombshell, that's bye-bye from me. And goodbye from me. Kilo Nova. We are robots from deepest space. Alien craftwork? Craftwork might be aliens anyway. Um, it's not been firmly established otherwise. Before we get sued from the craftwork aliens, we should probably move on. I personally don't think it's defamatory to suggest that one might not be of this world. And I... I... I did it. I learned a lot about defamation at university. They spent a lot of time telling us how to not get sued. Is it defamatory to say to request that someone be not of this world? Like, are there some people that we can safely say we should just put in space, just send them away? Yes, just saying I don't like this person or would like to send them to space would come under fair comment. Noted. <laughs>